Good morning, Salt Box. And uh, let me also look into the camera and extend a warm welcome to anyone from any place who's gathering with us. What an unusual time for the church. I, um, my name is Michael Mattis, and I lead a church in Wilmington, North Carolina called Salt Box. And I want to start actually by looking over at Stacy and saying thank you for leading us in worship. It's evident to me every time Stacy leads that there's this heart for worship that's been cultivated between her and the Lord. And you know, as we uh, continue in our Defining Moments um, series, I would want to um, encourage each of you on something. Some of you may need to turn the news off. Some of you may need to sign off of social media. Some of you may need to stop looking at what other people are saying. And some of you might need to do what I think Stacy's spending some time doing, which is worshiping the king. Because there's something about worship that is, um, it's almost like a conduit of heaven. It, it begins to transport uh, your perspective um, into more of a heavenly one. And listen to me, church, I'm watching Christians across the board um, sort of falter in their walks with God because they're shifting their gaze from King Jesus onto things like news or social media or tensions all across our country. And when we can immerse ourselves in him, whether it's in the word, I hope you're in your one-year Bibles. If you're not, there's a phone number or an email that'll be on the screen at some point. Contact us, we'll get you a one-year Bible. But I hope you're in your one-year Bible. I hope you're spending some time actually closing the doors and choosing to worship King Jesus because it will reset you. And at this moment in time, this is a defining moment, not just for our church, for churches in general, and for Christians, because if the joy of the Lord is not our strength, we're missing it. If we're not able to walk in peace and kindness with those around us, even who we disagree with, we betray that King Jesus is not the Lord of our life. So we're in this uh, series called Defining Moments, and I'm actually taking a look at a passage in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37, and then we're going to take a look at just two or three verses um, in Matthew And before I even read it, I want to give a backdrop. But like so many times, I got into the book of Ezekiel and went, oh my goodness, I love this. We need to do a whole series on it. But Ezekiel is this wild book of the Bible. It's this, he's this um, young, um, uh, he's supposed to be a priest, but he becomes a prophet. And it's full of these powerful visions and dramatic choices. And it's it's a book of tragedy in some ways, but it's also a book of enormous hope. And I think that's what we need right now. We need hope. I mean, there's people around us who are hopeless and um, who are distraught and who are afraid. And we as Christians are called more than any other time to be carriers um, of hope. And I think we're sitting on a, a cataclysmic defining moment in the church, not just our church, but every church, the church at large. So here in Ezekiel, this is a, a message of hope. Um, and if you, if you even pause there and, and think across the nation, what's happening? We have um, political polarization and frustration. There's hatred and anger at an all-time high, more than I have ever seen. You have the uncertainty of COVID-19. We have the financial uncertainty of businesses in, in the future. Um, we have all of the issues of mental health coming forward. There was a, a newborn baby Um, not far from where I'm preaching, put in a trash bag and put in a trash can Um, in our city this week. I mean, mental health is at an all-time terrible spot. 
And then you have all of the injustice. There's been mass shootings. There's been ethnic tensions, racial tensions, justice issues. I mean, this is a time where more than anything, we need hope. So I'm convinced as we look at Ezekiel here that this is a defining moment, not only for each of us, but for us as a church and for the church. So a little background on Ezekiel. He would have been about 25 years old. Maybe you can relate. Um, but he would have been living in the capital of his country, Jerusalem, and he would have known that he was on his way to becoming a priest. And he's going about his business, doing his thing, and he's full of hope because of the financial security and all, of, all that being a priest would mean. And suddenly, a Babylonian army invades, and instead of um, destroying the city, they carry out the best and brightest, the young sort of people, if you will. And Ezekiel was actually one of them. So they carry Ezekiel away. Um, he becomes a, a prisoner, and he's taken into exile. And then he actually starts writing this book about five years after. After that, give or take, and he's hanging out at a refugee camp by the Kaibar River in Babylon. And he's literally hanging out. It's around his 30th birthday, and um, he's supposed to start serving as a priest. And, and instead of serving as a priest, what happens is he has this um, dramatic vision uh, from, from God. And there's four creatures with four faces, and they're traveling in formation, and they sort of create this place where the presence of God um, is. And at that moment, God God calls Ezekiel to be a prophet instead of a priest. And God actually tells Ezekiel to speak truth. God tells him to speak out against violence, against injustice. He, he calls Ezekiel to begin to say that people are worshiping false gods, to call people back to Yahweh at that point, or King Jesus, um, call people back to remembrance of God, to, to repentance, into relationship with God. And, and he actually even says that, Ezekiel, you're called to a people. Um, this is Ezekiel 2, if you want to read it. But they have stiff faces, hard hearts, and bronze foreheads. And he says they're not going to listen to you. So um, Ezekiel actually speaks truth, the whole book. He's, he's proclaiming truth. People's hearts are hard. They're not listening. This goes on for years. I can't imagine how discouraging it must be for Ezekiel to continue in his ministry. He preaches and preaches and preaches. He's preaching the right message. The favor of God is on him. The presence of God is on him. The gracious hand of God is on him. And the people are not listening. Their hearts are hard. One of the things that Ezekiel says is he's proclaiming that another attack is going to come against Jerusalem, and this time everything will be wiped out. And it's not a few years, but Ezekiel's um, prophecy comes true. Babylon attacks again, and the people of God are murdered and scattered and cast around. And Ezekiel wonders, right here before we pick up what we're going to read, Ezekiel is literally wondering, is God done with us? Is God done with Israel? Is God done with the Christians? Is God done with the church? Have we, have we gone too far? Have we blown it for good? Is there just too much sin and too much apathy? Is there too much worship of, of false gods? And I think the question that Ezekiel is asking as God sort of answers in this chapter 37 that we're about to read um, is very pertinent and very fresh for us today. I'd actually love to hear more Christians, instead of criticizing and pointing fingers and being ugly, beginning to ask, God, what are you doing? And I'd love to see more humility in the hearts of men and women who are walking with Jesus. I'd love to see more contrition in the hearts because King Jesus was the ultimate. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and he gave his life on a tree. He's the ultimate in humble. He's the ultimate in, in laying it all down. So here's where we pick up in 
verse or in chapter 37, and I'm just gonna read a few verses for us, and we're gonna flip over and read a couple verses out of Matthew 23, and then we'll share a few points and ask the Holy Spirit to be alive in our midst. So Ezekiel 37, the hand of the Lord was on me. May that be true of us, church. I don't care what they say of me or of us, but may we be a people where they say the hand of the Lord is on them. He brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and he set me in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. So Ezekiel is most likely having a vision here is what's happening, but God has literally sort of picked Ezekiel up and he's brought him out and he sets him in a valley in the Middle East, so desert valley full of bones. And he led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. So think with me, I mean, this is like, uh, you know, sort of uh, cataclysmic movies that you would have seen. This is like mass murder. This is, um, you know, dried bones. So they're white baked dried bones. Verse three, he asks me, so God is asking Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And I, I love what Ezekiel says. What else are you gonna to say to God when he asks you a question like that? Can these bones live? Ezekiel's brilliant. He said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he, God, said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. And I will put breath in you and you will come to life and then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse seven, so Ezekiel prophesied as he was commanded. And as he was prophesying, there's like a noise, there's a rattling. And this is fascinating to me because the bones begin to come together piece by piece in the, the natural human anatomy. And he sees tendon and then flesh appear on them and then skin covers them. But what's fascinating is there's still no breath in them. The end of verse eight, it's like they're now um, dead corpses. They have skin and flesh and hair or lack of and they're there and, but they're still dead corpses. And then in verse nine, he says to, to Ezekiel, prophesy the breath. Get this, prophesy the breath, son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. Now listen, you got it. So right now we have this vast army of people um, who have no breath in them. So they're literally corpses there. And then all of a sudden God is saying to Ezekiel, prophesy uh, from the four winds, which isn't some weird incantation. The, the, the breath of God is actually the ruach um, that's the Hebrew word, but it, it literally, God breathed. And so when he says, come breath of four winds, he's literally saying, come God from every area and infill these people and breathe life into these dead bones. Verse 10, so I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them, ruach. They came to life and they stood on their feet, a vast army. Verse 11, then he, Yahweh, said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. I'm hearing that today. 
I'm hearing that our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. And that actually says to me that we as a nation, we as a church, we as individuals are at a cataclysmic defining moment because it's when people become desperate again and hungry for the presence of God and the purposes of God in their lives, when they begin to turn their hearts towards God, that the very presence of God can now show up. Because for the last number of years, we've been rather proud and rather indifferent to a holy God. And when a situation like this rises up where people who are of strong mind and strong bodies and have mental even health and stability, such as we have in America, even financial health and stability, and suddenly a a COVID-19 breaks out and racial disintegration is revealed and uh, things like police reform that need to happen is revealed and all of a sudden people's theology and people's marriages and people's families and what begins to unfurl is, oh my goodness, we have forsaken a holy God. And it becomes an opportunity for a people then to humble themselves, to get on their knees, to turn hearts back towards King Jesus. I am convinced, church, that we are sitting at our greatest hour in my lifetime, that we are at the greatest cataclysmic defining moment if we are willing to turn to King Jesus, to stop playing games, to stop looking at other things, to get our eyes off of all the distractions and get our eyes back on the king of glory. Verse 11, he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, this is God, hear me. My people, I'm gonna open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land, and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. I have done it, declares the Lord. Flip over with me to Matthew 23. I'm gonna read a couple verses, and as I head there, um, I've been reading uh, the biography of um, George Whitfield, D.L. Moody, and Billy Graham. So Whitfield was 1700s, Moody was 1800s, Billy Graham was 1900s. What's fascinating to me is all three of these unique men carried this sort of transatlantic anointing between the UK and Europe and then the Americas up into Canada and even South America. And, but what's fascinating is the spirit of God, if you look at their lives, it so clearly wasn't them. It was so clearly God that, that, uh, that, that lifted them, although I would contend that their hearts were so surrendered in their era, in their time. And God literally um, lifted them, but it was always following a tragedy. It was always following national um, dissension or or tragedy. So uh, D.L. Moody was on the heels of the Civil War in America. Incredible. From 1865 to like 1899, his ministry just boomed, and there was revival and renewal in the church. 
Billy Graham was on the heels. He started preaching in L.A. in like 49, I think, after World War II had ended in 45 and the aftermath of that drug on, 46, 47. But literally, when God allows something like what he is allowing right now, it is because he is working to get the attention of the hearts and minds of his people. He is allowing, I wouldn't say for a minute God has caused the coronavirus, but I do think at some level his gracious hand has been uh, pulled back from America and the enemy and human flesh and the ugliness of us all has sort of risen up. And what I am convinced of, church, is that if we can press in and bear in in the most contrite and humble way, if we can put ourselves low before God, serving one another, loving one another, preferring one another, and surrendering our hearts to him, that he could take this time and use it to cause a nation who has grown cold and a nation who has grown hard and a nation who has turned away from him to literally do an about face and turn back to him. I'm 39 years old and Abby and I have been talking. We have 40 years in front of us and we're going, Lord Jesus, could it be that this is one of those defining moments where you are changing the fabric of our nation, where you're changing the fabric of the church, where you're changing the fabric of individuals, and could it be that there is such a shaking and such a stirring, and could it be that God intends to call and raise up men and women that would change their world with the power of the gospel? Could it be that God wants to prophesy life and breath, ruach, into the deadness of America and in the deadness of the American church. Let it be so. Matthew 23, I'm gonna read three verses. This is Jesus talking. Sometimes I wish the church would get back to just the red letters. These are the red letters. Matthew 23, verse 23, he's talking to the Pharisees. And he literally looks at me and he says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, dill, your cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. This is some of the church that I see, some of the church that I've been a part of, some of the church that I've led. We have an opportunity to repent, turn back to King Jesus. Verse 27, he says again, and Jesus was almost never critical like this of people. You can almost find no place where Jesus is uh, firm or carrying any sense of righteous anger. Jesus is gentle, he is meek, he is kind, and yet when he speaks to the religious leaders, so they'd be like the pastors of the day. He, this is how he, he speaks to them. He reserved his harshest criticism, and he says, woe to you, teachers of the law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which looks so beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones, the dry bones of the dead and everything unclean. Holy Spirit, as we unpack this, would you enliven us? Holy Spirit, would you bring um, even an attitude and, um, of, of repentance over us as a church and over the church 
And would you turn us back to you where we've grown cold and hard? Father, have mercy on us. Amen. My first point this morning is that this is the God who raises us to life. In 2016, I took a, I was a family pastor and I took a group of um, students with a couple other leaders up to Manhattan and uh, as part of that trip, um, so what's that, like five years ago, four years ago, um, but as part of that trip, we did all sorts of outreach in Manhattan. We were doing ministry and different things. And we had set up something where we would go and um, uh, tour um, a, um, a mosque, believe it or not, a Muslim mosque. And we actually um, had it so that we would uh, sit down with some of the, the mosque leaders and talk and interact. And what we were really working on was helping these um, young uh, high school and college students have a faith that was intelligent. Because it, it seems to me like much of the American church, it's like we kind of have this cotton candy faith and you all of a sudden put that faith inside of the rigor of a university education and it like blows away. No, no, our faith holds water. Our faith actually stands up. Like if you understand the hermeneutics and the theology and the historicity of the Bible, it will stand against any conceptual argument. It is, it does stand. And so what we were doing is, is I was literally, we were taking these students in there and I was going, listen, if you're going to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, I think that's John 14, 6, If you're going to say that and you're going to live your life out of that, then you better dip your toe in and understand what some of these other religions teach. What's interesting is all their holy guys are still dead. Our holy guy, his body was never found because he rose. Those dry bones rose. But we went into this mosque and we had this time and afterwards I snapped a photo of <clears throat> a couple of us and I posted it and I sort of shared on, I don't know what it was, Instagram, what we were doing. And there was a few people at the church that were furious with me. And what happened over the next month is they went to the elders and they complained and there was public posts on social media. There was a whole, a whole array of things sort of unfurled. But what began to happen was ugliness in my own heart was revealed. And I began to realize I was angry. I began to realize I was resentful. I began to realize I was judgmental. How many of you know that when a crisis occurs, that crisis does not create negativity inside of you? What the crisis does is it reveals what's already there. So let me, let's pause here for just a second. Um, apparently the Barna Group just came out with a little statistic that some 30% of people are drifting away from church. I don't think for a minute that the coronavirus is making people drift away from church. I don't think that an economic failure is making people drift away from church. I don't think racial tensions and ugliness and police reform that's necessary being revealed is making people drift away from church. I think what's happening is there's a crisis in our land that is revealing that people's hearts have been hard against a holy God. So this lady is uh, super critical of me, this was a group of people. And I began to get in touch when I got back with some anger. And it was amazing because it was like <clears throat> the Holy Spirit came and he began to convict who? Them? I don't know what he did with them, but I know what he did 
with me. And I began to recognize the judgmentalism, the anger, the frustration, the lack of patience, the lack of kindness, the lack of joy, the lack of love in my own heart. And I did the craziest thing. I actually, uh, first I just repented in the quietness of my own heart. Forgive me, I'm drinking another sip of water. But then secondly, what I did is I began to go and meet with these people and I made friends with them. And I actually started by asking their forgiveness for my judgmentalism. And I began to understand who they were, where they were coming from, why they thought the way they thought, and I began to help them even understand some of me. Now, I'm not sure that any of them changed. It doesn't really matter, but guess who did change? Me. You can't change anyone else. You can't go to Jesus and have him resurrect anyone else. But when you are in a situation and he reveals the ugliness of your own heart and what's going on inside of you, you can go to him and say, Lord Jesus, I see the death and the dry bones inside of me. Would you raise me to life? This is the God who raises you to life. So let's dig on that just a second. What does it mean to be dead spiritually? You might go, Pastor Michael, what, are you, what, what does that mean? Give me some like handles. Okay, here it is. You might value religion um, over relationship. That's pharisaical. That's uh, religious. When you begin to value a set of rules and cleaning up the outside and you neglect authentic relationship and connection and humility and love, that's religious. You might uh, serve Jesus more out of duty than out of delight. In other words, Jesus called us to walk with him out of delight, and yet many of us find ourselves slipping into walking with him out of duty. That's religious. It would say to me that you're full of some dead bones. Let me also say here, this passage that we're reading is a paradigm or is a paradox. It tells a story of how people come to faith in God and they go from total death to total life. But I think this passage also highlights um, sort of the sanctification journey, which is just a Bible word, and it means the ongoing journey by which each of us take on the character and likeness of Jesus. So uh, for me, there's not a day that's yet gone by, I'm 39, where I haven't looked back over my shoulder at the day and gone, I really wish I would have been more kind there. I probably need to ask their forgiveness. Uh, I was impatient with the kids here. I was ugly with Abby here. And what begins to happen is there's this ongoing daily sort of humility that's built inside of me as I begin to take on and appropriate the character and likeness of Jesus. So this passage we just read is is, um, representative of the first time you come to Christ because you go from dead to alive, but it's also representative as you walk with Jesus, you're gonna find these areas um, of sin, of deadness, of gnarliness, of dry bones inside of you. And Jesus, as you find those, wants to take those and breathe ruach, the breath of God, into them and bring them to life. So what does it mean to be dead spiritually? It would mean that you value performance over surrender. It means that you're still working to please God instead of recognizing you can't please him and you come to him sort of just as you are, bankrupt, dependent wholly upon his forgiveness and his grace and the blood of Jesus to rescue you. It might mean that you have a a management of perception. You you, you, uh, prefer to uh, focus on people's perception of you instead of truly looking at heart posture before God, which no one sees. 
It could mean that you have some judgment inside of you and you're more quickly to judge people than you are to encourage people. So let's flip that just a second. What's it mean to be spiritually alive? It means that you've embraced relationship with God. It means that you're walking in the fruit of the Spirit. Just think of that a minute, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You can just look at someone. You can just have one or two interactions with someone and you know pretty quickly whether the fruit of the Spirit is filling and overflowing from them or whether they're angry and anxious and scared and critical and judgmental. And you can pretty much go, okay, this person is uh, in the journey or this person has hit a little bump where they're seeing some dry bones where God needs to ruach, breathe, so that he can bring that area to life. So here's my question, church. This is the God who raises us to life. Are you dead? Is there an area you're dead? You may be tuning in and you go, I've never surrendered my life to King Jesus. You're dead, you're those dry bones. But you might go, I've been a believer for 10, 15, 20 years, and you might be going, there's an area, almost like a story I just told, where God is clearly putting his hand on something where there is deadness, where he wants to breathe into it and make it alive. So you've got to acknowledge that you're standing in a valley of dry bones. You've got to acknowledge your own deadness before him so that King Jesus can breathe life, ruach, into that area and bring it to life. This is the God who raises you to life. Secondly, this is the God who puts breath, ruach, inside of you. It's the breath of God. It's used 10 times, actually, in this passage. And a parallel to it is uh, Genesis 2-7. God created Adam, and then it literally says, he breathed, he ruach, he breathed the life of God, the, 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 the spirit of God into Adam, this lifeless body in the beginning, and he came to life. He uh, breathed. In Ezekiel's day, the church represented by the nation of Israel was dead spiritually. In Jesus' day, the church would have been, now I'm using church loosely, but it, it would have been comprised of uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. And what's interesting about all four of those groups, if we looked at all four of them, which we're not gonna do today, but all four of those groups were so right, they were dead wrong. They were so right, they, were, they had cleaned up the outside of themselves so much and they were saying the right things and doing the right things and giving their money and giving their time and not breaking any of the rules. But inside, Jesus said, you are full of dead men's bones. God may be revealing today that the church at large, maybe even that our church, maybe that your heart, maybe that my heart has some deadened areas where he wants to breathe ruach and bring it to life. I love where he says, son of man, can these bones live? To Ezekiel, it was apparent that these people were dead, but to the people of his day, it was not apparent. To the Israelites in the day of Jesus, it was not apparent that the Essenes and Zealots and 
uh, Pharisees and Sadducees were dead. And to some of us today, let me say this very gingerly, but there is an assumption that if people come to a church, it must be alive. There is an assumption that if it looks good, so what does look good mean? That's gonna be in the eyes of the beholder. To some of you, looks good means there's a steeple and hymnals and an organ. To others of you, that means we have tattoos and vans. But either way, there's this presumption that if it looks good and if it sounds good, then God is in the mix. And I would actually caution us to hold, to stop, to throttle back and to go, King Jesus, are you here? Is your presence here? Is your power here? Is your purpose here? My third point is that God puts his spirit in you. He literally says it, God puts his spirit. But in the, in the Old Testament, this is the, the Ruach. In the New Testament, this is Pneuma. This is um, Hagios Pneuma, Holy Spirit. And, and this is a parallel. What happens here in chapter 37 where these bones come to life is a parallel about what happens in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost when the mighty Pneuma, the mighty Pneuma blows through that, that room and all of a sudden flames of fire appear and people are all of a sudden um, speaking in tongues of different languages and Peter gets up and preaches this booming sermon and 3,000 people give their life to Jesus and are baptized. Who's got those kind of numbers at their church? What a remarkable thing. See, God, while we were still his enemies, Jesus, you look at Romans 5.10, Colossians 1.21, Ephesians 2, verses three and four, literally says that Jesus went while we were still his enemies, while we were dead in our ugliness, while we were dead in our own sin, every one of us, he went to a cross and he died for us so that we could live, so that we could, if we'd come to him in full surrender, he would breathe on us the ruach or the pneuma and he would fill us and he would make us new. You might be sitting out there today and you're going, I hate who I've become. I don't like what's happening on the weekends. I'm drinking too much. I'm looking at stuff I wish I wasn't. My marriage is falling apart. I'm home and I'm lonely. My finances are a disaster. I'm living in fear. I, I'm, I'm, and I would say, praise God. You're now at a spot where you can actually come to him and bow the knee and go, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need you to take every bit of me. And when you come to him in that type of surrender, everything changes because he takes dead bones and he makes them alive. He can change anyone. The very beginning of 2008, I was in a very dark place in my own life. And I'd come to the point where I hated who I had become. And I got on my knees and cried out that King Jesus would save me. And he put me on a journey to change me, to make me new, to ruach, breathe life into me, to put that hagios pneuma, the Holy Spirit in me and to, to make me new. I, I actually was talking, texting, because we're not seeing people face to face very much right now, but I was texting with someone and they asked about a mutual friend, and I actually texted back and I said, listen, 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 that mutual friend, I have such respect for them because they believed in me when very few people would. 
Church, listen, we must be a conduit of heaven. We must, as believers, be so gripped with the love of Christ and willing to uh, lay our own lives down, willing to humble ourselves, our own preferences, our own ideals, our own understanding of everything from politics to money to socioeconomic to everything in between, so that we can reach out and become the ruach of God, become the very breath of God, become the hands, feet, and face of Jesus to a world that is lost and scared and broken and needs hope, just like in the day of Ezekiel. The last point I wanna make is that this is the God who gives you a hope and a future. He ends the whole thing with, I'll take you back into this land, I'll settle you there, and you'll know that I, the Lord, have spoken. This is the God who raises you to life. This is the God who puts his breath, ruach, into you. This is the God who puts his spirit, hagios pneuma, the Holy Spirit, into you. He breathes into you. This is the God who gives you a hope. This is the God who gives you a future. Now listen to me. One day, every single one of us is going to stand before a holy God. We're going to cross over into eternity. And he's going to look at you and he's going to say something like, why should I let you in to my glorious heaven? And if your answer is, well, because I tried to be a good person, I tried to be nice, I, 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 I tried to give some money away, I helped out at this organization once in a while, I, uh, you know, I tried not to cuss and I tried not to drink and I tried not to smoke. And if your answer is any of those things, there will not be entrance into heaven. I don't even like to talk like this, but this is the reality of the scriptures. If your answer is anything other than, I have surrendered my heart and my life to King Jesus, I have given him my all, and my name is written in the Lamb's book of life, there will be no entrance into heaven. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through him. I don't care how broken you are, I don't care what you've done, I don't care how bleached out and dead your bones are, I don't care how bad it looks, I don't care how dead it is, when the ruach of God, the breath of God breathes on you, he can literally take what's dead and make it alive. That is our God. I would say, very humbly that the American church has traded the revelation of the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the awe of God for a fascination with the external. I would say very humbly that I believe the American church is in danger of becoming pharisaical, pompous, self-righteous, angry group of people who are so right, they're dead wrong in their rightness. You know, there was a time where Jesus built a mega church overnight. He did it two different times. Uh, and he did it by feeding everyone. He fed a group of 5,000 and he fed a group of 4,000 on two different sides of the Sea of Galilee. I've stood in the very place where he fed those groups. And everyone wants to come when you're, when you're feeding, right? And it says 4,000 or 5,000 men. So if you take, I don't know, if it could have been families of two or families of four, but you're talking somewhere between 12,000 and 20,000 people that, that Jesus fed with a few little loaves and, and fish. But after he fed them, he turned to everyone and he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody went, what? 
what? This is, this is gross. What? And they all deserted him. And he's left sitting there with his 12 disciples. And he, he looked around this the little circle of the 12 disciples on the hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And he said, everyone's gone. Are you going to go too? Simon Peter, I love Simon Peter. He spoke up and he said, Lord, to where would we go? Who else has the words of life? Church, there's something offensive about the gospel because you can't earn your way into God's grace. You surrender your way. You lay it all down. You die so that you can live. You recognize that you're dry bones. You recognize that you're dead. You ask him that he would breathe the ruach or the hagios pneuma into you so that he takes what's dead and makes it alive. There are parts of the American dream that are at war with the gospel of Christ Jesus. I want to do something as we close, and then Stacy's going to come up and do a closing song. But I would imagine there's some of you tuned in who have never surrendered your life to King Jesus. I'd also imagine there's some of you who are listening, who are woefully aware that there's some dead bone valleys in your life, and you want to avoid them. You kind of know where they are, but you're going to like walk around them. You don't want to talk about them because they're dark and you don't want to go there. Listen to me. There's no valley deep enough or dark enough or chasm ugly enough or sin brutal enough that Jesus can't take it when you come to him and surrender and he can't breathe that ruach on it and take those dry bones and make it new. He can make you new. But you've got to be willing to look around and go, I'm in a valley of dry bones. I'm dead in my sin. I am lost and I need the power of the gospel of Christ Jesus to save me. Would you pray with me? If you've never surrendered your life to this King Jesus, right now is the time. Repeat after me something like this. Lord Jesus, I recognize that my heart is a valley of dry bones. Lord, I recognize that without you, without your infilling breath, without your spirit, that I am broken and dead. And Lord Jesus, I would acknowledge that you are the son of God and you came to earth, you lived, you walked, you were crucified, dead, buried. And you rose again, you overcame death. Would you come? Would you live in my heart? Would you forgive me for my sin? Would you breathe the ruach of God into me and make me new? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's a number on your screen. If you gave your life to Jesus today, here's what I want you to do. I want you to either text that number or call it. And we want to connect with you. And we want to ask you to do a couple things, probably four. First, we want to get a Bible in your hands. We, we've chosen the one-year Bible, and we've asked a lot of our people to be in that. But we'll get a Bible in your hands. The second thing is we want you to get um, baptized in water. That's important because it's a symbol of, of washing that old person away and welcoming the new person in Jesus. And then thirdly, 
we want you to get connected to a church. We'd love for you to be a salt box, but it doesn't really matter. You just need to get connected to a church. You need to get connected to a church that preaches Jesus. You need to get connected to a church that puts a value on the holiness and presence of God. And you need to get connected to a church that teaches the whole Bible. Fourthly, we want to pray with you that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit, the Hagios Pneuma of God. Church, as we close this morning, if you gave your life to Jesus for the first time, text us or call us at this number. We'd love to encourage you in the journey. As you go from here, as you get up from your chair or sofa or couch, whatever you're sitting on, go knowing this is the God, the creator of heaven and earth, who can take the darkest darkness and the driest bones and breathe into them the breath of life. He's the God who can change a country from coast to coast. He's the God who can renew a people. He's the God who can bring hearts back to him. This is the creator God, Lord of heaven and earth. May you sense the warmth of his gaze on you and on your life. May you sense his presence filling you. And may everything that you do in his mighty name be blessed exceedingly. We'll see you here next week at the same time.